I wonder if you ever thought much about how seeming, seemingly backward and upside down is the wisdom of Jesus and the apostles. So often the uh, counsel that they give us stands the uh, wisdom of the world on its head. It just uh, seems directly contrary to what uh, we're told is good and right and proper. One of the best examples, I think, is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus saying to the uh, crowd gathered at his feet such things as, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the non-defensive, those that do not fight to get their own way, because in the end they get it all. And that seems so backward to everything that, from everything that we uh, hear from the world. And if you stop and envision for a moment the crowd to which Jesus uh, addressed those words, it seems even more incongruous. Tough, uh, hardened old fisherman who looked like the uh, tugboat captain on the Meisterbrow commercials and uh, cigar-chomping Jewish uh, businessmen and uh, hard-bitten Roman centurions. And yet Jesus says, don't fight for your rights. Be gentle, be meek, because in the end you'll inherit the earth. And, of course, he's right, you know. If we don't fight for our rights, God will fight for for us, and in the end we will receive everything that God has for us, but uh, at first blush that doesn't seem to be good advice. Now the passage we want to look at this morning is that sort of thing because it approaches uh, problems from uh, a different perspective, a different standpoint. It's 2 Corinthians 1. Will you turn there uh, with me? 2 Corinthians 1, 12. And following. Uh, as you know, Paul had been badly misunderstood by the people in Corinth. They misinterpreted his intentions and his uh, motivation, and, and they imputed to him uh, motives that he, he didn't have, and he was badly misunderstood. And in a situation like that, we would think that the hurt herbs ought to make amends for the the break in the relationship. They They ought to take the initiative to heal the relationship. But in this case, it's the hurtee. It's the one who's on the the receiving end of all of this mistreatment who initiates the uh, uh, reaffirmation of love, and he, he makes the first contact with these Corinthians. Now, what Paul does in this section, consciously, I think, because he is an inspired apostle, is teach us how to handle relationships. When things get out of phase, when we get, uh, we get crosswise with our wives or our husbands or our children or our parents or our employees or our neighbors, how do we go about affecting a reconciliation? And Paul tells us there are three steps. The first is an examination of our own conscience. Secondly, an explanation of why we did what we did. We need to explain our behavior and our motivation behind the behavior. And third, having done that, we need to, uh, to affirm the person that uh, has offended us. Now, that's the approach that, uh, that Paul takes. This examination of his, uh, of his attitudes and, and his action is described in verses 12 through uh, 14. Paul says, this is our boast. This is what we're bragging about. I'm going to stick out my chest, he says, and I'm going, to, I'm going to brag about something. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you 
In the holiness and sincerity that are from God, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Doesn't sound right that Paul would uh, brag about his, uh, his clear conscience. Doesn't seem the proper thing to do for someone who... Uh, is described as humble and meek, and yet that's what he's doing. He does it tongue-in-cheek. There's a little bit of light sarcasm. He, he, he's, uh, he's kidding the, uh, the Corinthians a little bit because they had accused him of, of, being, of lacking ag- uh, 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 aggressiveness. He wasn't straightforward enough. He didn't talk about himself enough. He didn't uh, brag on his accomplishments, about his accomplishments, as so many of the, of the leaders in Corinth apparently did. And so throughout this book, Paul will occasionally brag about what he's done. It's all tongue-in-cheek. It's irony. He says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, now let's see, there are, there are some things that I can brag about. Let's see now, I have been, uh, been in prison probably more than any of you. I've been flogged five times. Twenty-four hours I spent treading water in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Oh, yes, the thing that I really boast about. If you want to know what I'm really proud of, it's the day that they put me in a smelly old fish basket and, and let me over the side of the wall in, Dama- in the city of Damascus, and I had to run for my life. Now, that's what Paul is doing here. It's tongue-in-cheek. He says, I, I want to boast a little bit. I, I'm, I'm going to brag on myself. Uh uh, my my relationship with you has always been upfront and honest. He said my my conscience is clear. I, I have never, he said, acted in in worldly wisdom, but in grace. And he says I'm I'm sincere in all that I say and everything that I write. You can trust me. I have integrity. He says I'm believable. I'm credible. The word he uses for sincere is an interesting term. It it literally means judged by the sun. Uh, In those days, uh, there were unscrupulous vendors, just as there are today, and uh, pottery salesmen were apparently the worst. When a pot would crack, instead of discarding it, they would fill up the cracks with wax, and then they would put a nice glaze over it. And uh, you ladies would go down to the store to buy a casserole dish and you take it home and put your meatloaf in it and stick it in the oven and the wax would melt and of course the whole thing would be ruined so what you would do if you were a wise buyer is that you would take the take the vase or the the bowl outside they didn't have incandescent lights in those days you couldn't test it against the lights in the shops so you'd take it outside and hold it up against the sun and you could see right through the cracks and if it was a flawed vessel you you would note that immediately and that's what Paul means by sincere, judged by the sun. Incidentally, our English word sincere comes from a Latin word that has precisely the same cultural background. Sincere comes from two Latin words, sinna, that means without, and sera, which means wax, without wax. Same idea, you see. So they'd, they'd trot the bowl out into the sunshine and hold it up, and if it had a crack, they'd, they'd take it back in and say, that's a no-good base. You're trying to pawn off on me... Uh, Second-class uh, merchandise. Take it back. Give me a good one. This thing has to be sincere without wax. Now, that's what Paul is saying. 
I am utterly out in the open, transparent, no hidden motives, no hidden agenda, no uh, uh, false intentions. It's all good. I'm, I'm credible. I'm believable. I'm trustworthy. I'm reliable. He says, I don't operate on the basis of worldly wisdom. You know what that's like. The, the world lies to us all the time, particularly in their advertisements, in their commercials. You know, you, you, you buy this automobile and some pretty young lady will come and sit down next to you and you'll be happy the rest of your life. <laughs> or uh, you wear these jeans and everybody will be attracted to you. And, or you buy uh, toilet paper with pink flowers on it and your husband will love you. <laughs> or something that you spray on or roll on is going to change your entire life. That's, that's, that's worldly wisdom. And it is wisdom. There's a great deal of wisdom there. It's very seductive and very alluring and very powerful and influential. Uh, John White puts it this way, and I'm just I'm just quoting him. He says, "There's a lot of wisdom in the world. Anybody that you can, can set you off on a light lifetime on the lifetime pursuit of the perfect deodorant, without realizing what an ass you are, cannot be entirely incompetent." That's what he said. <laughs> and and that's that's what the world is like. There's there's wisdom there, seductive wisdom, but but behind uh, that wisdom is. Are false motives. They want you to buy their junk, and they'll they'll lie to you in order to get you to purchase things that you never thought you needed in your whole life. They'll convince you that you need them. Paul says, "We're not like that. We don't have those hidden motives. We deal with you in grace." He said, "In the grace of God." Grace is one of those terms that's been emptied of its theological content. I think simply because it's been used as a theological term, and we often don't understand what the term really implies, but but in both the uh, New Testament and in the Old Testament, grace has the idea of of winsomeness, uh, acting in such a way that that you're agreeable. Uh, It has the idea of of positive intent and desire for another person. Uh, I was down on the South Fork of the Boise this last week when that storm hit and these big black clouds came boiling over the canyon walls and it started raining and lightning and thundering and and I I looked down at the end of the canyon here was this beautiful rainbow across the end of the this just as far as I could see beautiful rainbow and I thought of the promise made to Noah and I thought that's very gracious of the Lord to put that there for me and and remind me that it uh, it ain't going to rain no more, no more. That, <laughs> that God's not going to destroy the earth with a flood. That, as you know from the story of the flood in Genesis, the rainbow was God's sign that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. It stands for grace. And uh, it's an indication of God's good intentions for us. Wants nothing bad, all good. Heart is open to us. That's what Paul is saying. No worldly wisdom, no hidden motives. I operate in, in the grace of God. I just want the best for you. That's my intention. Now, that's where we need to start, with an examination of our own motives. The question we need to ask ourselves when someone feels that we have wronged them, when they misunderstand, when they're hurt by our actions, the first question we ought to ask is, is what have I done, if anything, to cause this situation? Is my conscience clear? Now, he is not saying, as Jiminy Cricket said to Pinocchio, let your conscience be your guide, because uh, conscience can be flawed. It can be off, because it, 
conscience operates on the basis of whatever standard we decide is right and proper. And uh, the standard can be off. We, conscience is an early warning system. Uh, as Ray Steadman used to say, it's, it's that still, small voice that makes you feel still smaller. Uh, it's that, that, uh, that sense down inside that we have somehow violated our standard, and, and the standard can be off. We may have picked up a wrong standard from our parents or from society or something we've been taught in, in, in a church someplace. What Paul is referring to is a, a conscience that is governed by the standard of, of the apostles and the prophets, that is, by Scripture, a conscience ruled by Scripture. And therefore, the first question we need to ask ourselves when someone is hurt by our actions or they misunderstand us is, is there some clear statement in Scripture which I violated? And, and correct ourselves. Uh, confess our sin to God first and receive his forgiveness and then go to the person and ask for their forgiveness, even if their reaction has been far greater than our sin against them. We need to begin with ourselves. That, that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The way to get the speck out of your brother's eye is first to, to deal with the two-by-four that's projecting from yours. Don't start with the other person's problem. That's, always, that's the way we tend to work out to problems with one another. It, it's your fault. My goodness, if you had just not done so-and-so, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have this conflict. But that's not where we start. We start first with ourselves. Paul says, I, I sat down and I tried to think through what I might have done. And had Paul done something, he would have apologized to them. He would have set things right uh, with God. But Paul says, in this case, I, I can't think of a thing. My, uh, my conscience is clear. Now that's where we begin, with an examination of our actions and the motives behind the actions. The second step is that of explanation. And there's a rather lengthy uh, paragraph beginning with verse 15 and running through the end of the chapter in which he simply explains to the Corinthians why he did what he did. Which, by the way, is a, is a very good question to ask someone when they do something to you that hurts you. And instead of assuming immediately that their intentions are evil, it's always good to ask the question, can you please explain to me why you did what you did? That is a, that's a great question. Uh, as Paul puts it, uh, we are not in, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and then everyone will have their praise from God. In other words, we don't know people's motives. We can't judge their motives. We can't see what's going on in their hearts. And uh, therefore, their actions may seem uh, very insensitive and, and, uh, and selfish until we see why they did what they did. Then we understand. Uh, I remember a number of years ago when our children were very small, we, uh, Carolyn and I went down to a conference center in California to plan a college retreat. I was on the committee that planned it. And uh, the director of the, uh, of the conference, when he saw our small children, took me aside and he said, you know, we, we have just seated these, these slopes up here behind the, the retreat center, these banks. Would you please tell your children not to play on them? So I said, sure. So I got Brian and Randy together, and I said, boys, stay off the bank. Please stay off the bank. It's been seated. Okay, Dad. So they went off to play, and 
we had our meeting, and about halfway through the meeting, I happened to be sitting right across from the director, and his eyes got as big as saucers, and he let out this roar, and he jumped to his feet, and I looked back, and sure enough, here came Brian right down that bank, skidding on his heels, just making two tracks right down through the through the uh, you know little green things about this tall, he was just beginning to to uh, show show some color, and down he went. And I was mortified, and the conference center director was worse than that. He jumped up, and he ran over, and he grabbed Brian, and he began to... He, he was just very, very angry. And I thought, well, i got to do something about this. So I, I went over, and I said, uh, well, wait, 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 let me take care of this. And I took Brian around in the back, and I was just mortified, embarrassed, and, and angry at Josh, at Brian, rather. And uh, <laughs> I, I sat, sat Brian down, and I said, Brian, Brian, I told you to stay off of the bank. Why did you get on the bank? And Brian said, Dad, what's a bank? (laughs) And that's the sort of thing that goes on all the time. People's intentions are good and we misunderstand. That's why we need to ask that, that question. Why did you do what you did? Now, what Paul is doing is explaining why he did what he did. This is in verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. In other words, he planned to travel from, uh, from Ephesus over to Corinth, which is down in the southern part of Greece, and then up to the north to Macedonia and receive the offering for the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem and then make his way back down to to Corinth and spend another period of time there before he went on to Judea. That was his original itinerary. Now he says in verse 17, When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? Now he's not saying that uh, he never says yes or no. Sometimes you can say yes, sometimes you have to say no. He doesn't say yes or no. He says, do, do I make my plan saying yes and no? In other words, do I say yes and mean no? Am I equivocating? A- a- am I dishonest in, in my dealings with you? He says, no, I don't do that. I don't act in a worldly manner. I don't tell people the check is in the mail if it isn't. I don't tell them that their product uh, is on its way if I haven't yet uh, mailed it. You know, that, that's very often the way the world deals with us. They're not honest. Paul says, I have integrity. When I say yes, I mean yes. When I say no, I say no. I don't speak with forked tongue. I, I'm, I'm on the level. I don't say yes and mean no. Now, he goes on in a parenthetic in a parenthetical section from 18 to 22 to say that he does that because that's the way God is. He says, you can, you can take me at my word because that's the nature and character of God. You can take God at his word. He says, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He he speaks the truth. In him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, God gives us promises and we say amen to those promises. Like Bob Dylan says, God don't make promises that he don't keep. When he gives his word, he means it. 
And when we read in God's word that he has given his word, we say, amen, that's right, you bet, all right, that's truth. Our, our word amen simply means I believe it. Our word amen, the English word, is simply a transliteration of the, of the Hebrew uh, verb that means uh, to believe. It's the word that Abraham used when God took him out into the stars and he said, can you count the stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Have as many children as there are sa- uh, grains of sand on the seashore. And Genesis, uh, Genesis, the author of Genesis says, Abraham believed God. He said, Amen. And that's what we do. And God gives us his word. He promises. And that's right. That's truth. I believe that. And then Paul adds a very nice touch here. He says in verse 21, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It's not obvious to English readers what he's saying, but he's playing on the word for amen because the root meaning of the Hebrew word amen means to be firm. In other words, God is firm. He's trustworthy. You can count on his word. When he speaks, we say amen, and God is at work to make you just as, as reliable as God is. That's what he's saying. He has sealed you. He has anointed you. He has given you his Holy Spirit, which is Paul's way of describing the sanctifying process by which the Holy Spirit works in us to make us just like God. And he says, I know that he's at work in us to make us firm, and he's at work in you to make you firm. That's such a nice touch. Because what Paul is doing is assuring them that he understands that they have good intentions too and there is hope for their relationship. He will do that a number of times in this passage. He does it back in verse 14 where he says, As you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then again, he says uh, in verse 21, It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. In other words, the same God who is at work in Paul is at work in them, and and there is hope for their relationship. That's what he's saying. It's a terrible thing to say to someone, there's no hope for you in your relationship. There, There is no reason why a relationship cannot be healed. Absolutely none. The issue is never incompatibility. The issue is always the attitude of the heart. That's why Jesus, when the disciples said to Jesus, why do people get divorces? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. Somebody has a hard heart. The only thing that causes a relationship to remain unreconciled is when one or the other simply will not work on the relationship. They refuse to. But uh, if we're willing to take the steps that God asks of us, any relationship can be set right. I don't care how broken, how disjointed it may be, it can be set right. And and there is all the way through this passage, this undercurrent of hope, of hope. We'll work this thing out. We're going to work on it until we work it out. We're not going to give up on it until the day of Jesus Christ. My intentions are good. I believe your intentions are good. And we're going to relentlessly, doggedly work at this thing until the relationship is healed. Now, Paul Paul goes on in his explanation in verses 23 and following to supply the reason for uh, his change in itinerary. This is still under the general heading of uh, of his explanation. 
of his actions and attitudes. Verse 23, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul was an apostle. Had he wanted to, he could have gone over to Corinth and said, All right, you guys, enough of this stuff. Let's knock this nonsense off and let's get this thing back together. But he wouldn't do that. He, he, he wouldn't come with the full weight of his apostolic authority. He says, I, the reason I didn't come to Corinth is because I wanted to spare you that, that kind of confrontation. I wanted to wait for God to work. Because had I done that, your dependence would have been upon me. Paul says, I don't want that to happen. I want your dependence to be upon God, and therefore I don't lord it over your faith. And this, by the way, coming from an inspired apostle who had the right to lord it over their faith. None of us does. But he did. And yet he didn't force a reconciliation. That's what he's saying. We always hamper a relationship or hamper reconciliation whenever we, we try to force it. Our tendency is to use too many words. I know my tendency is to try to just use enough words, you know, to force the other person to comply. Paul says in another place, the kingdom of God doesn't come through words, for goodness sake. It comes through power. It's through God working in the situation. Uh, you, you can't force fit two people together. You have to wait for God to work. So you give them space, as we say today. You uh, set right anything in yourself that's created the problem. You explain your behavior as best you can, and then you back off and give God an opportunity to work in that life to change the condition of the heart so they'll respond. And Paul says, that, that's why I didn't come. I, I wanted to spare you. Which incidentally leads us to another uh, related principle, and, and it's this. The only reason that we should change the word that we've given to someone else is if it's for their sake and not for ours. Our tendency is to, is to give our word and then uh, retract it because it works out better for us. We, we, we have a better deal. We, we agree to, to teach a, a Sunday school class or a Bible study, and then we discover that it's going to complicate our lives terribly. We cannot take off on the weekends any longer and, and do some of the things that we want to do, and so we, we take our word back. Or we do that to our wives or our husbands. We say, well, I took you for better or worse, but a better deal has come along, and you're a lot worse than I took you for, so uh, we, you know, we got to work something else out here. And we go back on our word. As Malachi puts it, you've been unfaithful to, the, to your covenant with the wife of your youth. You've changed your mind. You can't do that unless it's for her good, and that can't possibly be for her good. Are you, you young ladies accept a date from uh, Sam Nerd because it's the best you can do. It's better than staying at home. And then in the middle of the night, the middle of the uh, week, the Renaissance man on campus calls you and uh, he asks you out and you start thinking, uh, hmm, wonder how I can get out of this thing. Now, Psalm 15 says something about swearing to our own hurt. Once we give our word, then we need to do it even if it hurts us. Unless there is something better that we can do for the person that we've given our word to, and, and that's what Paul is talking about here. I gave you my word, he said, and I and I had to I, I had to change my itinerary not because uh, it was it was hard for me to follow through, it inconvenienced me, but because it's better for you. 
And so he explains. He explains why he was not able to uh, visit them twice. And then finally in chapter 2, we have the third uh, step in working out a broken relationship. Paul's affirmation of love. Paul says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieved you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. See what he's doing? He's simply affirming his love for them, letting them know that that he cares for them. Our, Our tendency is to jettison relationships that are troublesome to us. So some we we get misaligned with someone and and we're hurt, and it's just much easier to forget the whole thing and and not work on the relationship. Paul says, "Not that's not so. That's so. I, I I love you, and I want this relationship to to work." Um, our son Josh bought a guinea pig the other day by the name of Martin. I haven't yet figured out the significance of the name, but. Uh, I have discovered there is one problem with guinea pigs. They are incontinent, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you, you cannot housebreak a guinea pig. They're not very smart. And uh, the guinea pig disgraced himself on two occasions this past week. Once on Joshua's bed. He had to strip the whole bed and wash all, the, all of his uh, bedding. And, and then the next time on his lap. <laughs> And uh, Carolyn's comment to Josh was, uh, Josh, uh, if, if that ever happens on our rugs or on our furniture, there's going to be a new meaning put to the expression, pig out. <laughs> Overhearing that, I thought uh, that's the way we treat people very often. It's all right with pigs. I agree with her theory on pig care, but uh, with people, it's something else again. One mark of authentic Christian love is that we pursue relationships. It's not uniquely Christian to go through life without problems. I don't know any Christians that don't have problems, marital problems, problems with their children, problems with their employees, their employers, their neighbors. We all have problems. Some of them are very critical in their nature. Not uniquely Christian to be problem-free. That's the name of the game. What is uniquely Christian is that we will not let unresolved relationships go unresolved. We pursue them relentlessly until the relationship is healed. That's what Jesus meant when he said to us, if you're in church and... uh, you remember while you're sitting here worshiping that you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you. Please don't go on worshiping as though nothing is wrong. Get up and go set things right with that brother or that sister and then come back and worship. I didn't start out with that because I figured if I did, I would empty the auditorium. (laughs) But uh, that's... You see, Jesus is setting things in in proper order. That's the priority. It's, It's not... 
It's not a small thing. It's not a piccadilla. It's very, very important that we work at relationships and that we take the initiative. Even if you're the hurtee, even if you didn't hurt the person, you're the person who's hurt, to take the initiative, to set things right. And it involves, I think, in every case, these three steps. First of all, just saying, you know, if, if, if I've wronged you, I am indeed sorry. And if we know we did wrong them, to ask their forgiveness. It begins with an examination of our conscience. And then secondly, to explain why we did what we did or ask them for an explanation of why they did what they did so we can understand better. And then thirdly, affirm them in love. Let them know that that they're secure with us, that everything's all right, that we've forgiven. There's no hangover uh, unforgiveness. Everything is set free. We can do that with our kids, you know. It, it, it's, it's hard, I think, for parents sometimes to admit wrong to parent to, to children, but, but uh, Malachi makes the observation that when, when, the Lord, when the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. In other words, he'll break down these barriers of pride that, that exist between, uh, between generations. One mark of grace is that uh, a father is able to go to, a, to his son and say, Son, I was wrong in what I did. I was wrong to say what I said. I've offended you. Please forgive me. I did so because I was pushed or rushed or I've been anxious about things at the office and I've been insensitive to you because I've been preoccupied with those things. Nevertheless, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I want you to know I love you. Just those three simple steps can heal relationships between husband and wife and in-laws and, and their children and uh, employers and employees. It works. It works. It's not easy. It takes grace. But it works. Let's pray. Father, please do not let us justify our, our unwillingness to, uh, to set things right with a brother or sister simply because we're the one who's been wronged, who feels that the other person should take the initiative. Help us to see that it was you who took the initiative when, when we were, were separated from you, that you have... You are the hound of heaven who pursued us to bring us back and uh, thus set the, the pattern, the example for us in all relationships. Lord, give us the courage to do that and, and keep us from living with unresolved conflict. Keep us from thinking that somehow this thing will work out without any sort of direct action on our part. We know things never do, that we need to act. And thank you that your grace uh, gives us the courage to act and the sensitivity and, and the love to act as graciously as you act. Thank you for, for working in us to, uh, uh, to break down the barriers that exist between us and, and to make us one people, one loving, caring, concerned people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.